Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. A special episode today, one uh, that we're recording in the shadow of a tragedy in honor of a man we deeply love, uh, Thomas McKenzie. Uh, Aaron, you knew Thomas, of course. How long ago did you think you you guys met? I think we first met the first time he was on the podcast. Oh, okay. When he, uh, we did we have him on for the one minute movie reviews? Yes, we did. We did do that. <laughs> yeah, he he yeah. and I had different taste in music and in, in movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. It was a fun and uh, ongoing conversation. <laughs> but he was a part early on with Samson, and and which is always amazing and beautiful to me when a pastor will put himself in a situation to be honest in real time with other yeah men. yeah so here's the story for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with thomas mckenzie thomas was the, the founding pastor uh, or church plant uh, an anglican church in nashville church of the redeemer and i think on around year two of samson uh, perhaps year three. I'm not sure when he showed up, but it, it surprised me when uh, a pastor from Nashville showed up in the Franklin meeting of the Samson Society. Uh, but uh, man, he just earned my respect, the respect of the room right away with his honesty and humility and uh, transparency. He became you know, a regular attendee. And at one point I remember overhearing a conversation in the pub in the meeting after the meeting and somebody said, Hey Thomas, you're driving all the way down here every week for this, for the meeting. When are you going to start a Samson meeting in your church? And Thomas laughed and he said, never. He said, there needs to be a meeting in my church, but I'm not the guy to start it. I come here for me and I'm going to keep coming here for me. Mm. And uh, he made, uh, he found his brothers, he found his tribe in Samson. And when a lot of those uh, guys uh, took a, a courageous step to the formation of New Adam, uh, Thomas dove right into New Adam and stayed with those brothers um, for years. But, but even before that happened, I remember, golly, I don't know what year it was, maybe year four, year five of the Samson Society, if that late Promise Keepers Canada had a national magazine. They decided to do a, a cover story on the Samson Society, and they they hired a photographer <laughs> to shoot the cover photo. And uh, we agreed that since it was a group, you know, it was a story about guys walking together, we needed a group of Samson guys on the cover. And the question is, who wants to go public as a Samson <laughs> member, right? Especially when that couldn't have been too long after that other, what, not Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine, whoever, it was Christianity Today, right? That basically made it sound like a sex group. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And doggone it, there were several guys, uh, Scott Dente and Thomas, uh, Tom White, and uh, gosh, who else? Uh, I think Greg, I think uh, Glenn McClure. And by gosh, uh, Thomas McKenzie stepped up. And there he was, oh, just, and he wore his clerical collar in the photo for the cover of the magazine. That's that, courage. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
That's and it's since and it wasn't and probably by the time Thomas appeared on the cover of the magazine, a meeting had started in his church. Andy Gullihorn, after you know making the drive down to Nashville for a while, decided he needed to have a meeting at his church, and he formed the the second Samson group outside of Franklin. Still going strong today at churches, which is still going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, here is just the tragic news that I am still trying to wrap my head and my heart around. Yeah, how are you doing? Oh God, I'm doing a little better today because I have been able to process and 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 grieve some with other men. I got the news uh, two days ago that so here's the deal. Thomas has been looking forward to his sabbatical. So uh, he had a he had a sabbatical scheduled. Uh, his sabbatical uh, started on Monday. He preached on Sunday. His sabbatical started on Monday, and his plans were first drive his oldest daughter out to New Mexico to college, and then go to Spain and take a month walking the. Uh, Camino uh, del Santiago, uh, you know that that gender, just that classic Christian pilgrimage, and then after that, uh, at some point, he was going to meet his wife Laura in England, and uh, and Monday morning, first day of his sabbatical, headed west on I forty with his daughter beside him, was involved in a horrendous uh, car accident, and they were both killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that first news, just uh, Ali and I, we 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 could barely speak. We we were just absolutely stunned. We just sat in silence in our house for about an hour. Uh, a little later, my friend Kyle, who went to me, uh, went went to China with me, and I think for seven straight years went out to uh, the. A monastery in New Mexico where Richard Rohr is. I think for seven straight years, he and Thomas went out. Um, Kyle, after the New Adam meeting, came by my house and we just, you know, hugged and cried a bit. And uh, yeah, it seems like I spent all of yesterday just operating in a fog. I'll let you know. Um, how did how did it strike you when you got the news? Oh, like with all of these things, it just kind of hits you in a, or for me, it makes me feel kind of that numb shock. Yeah. Uh, I just, it's, it's, mm. death yeah. always amazes me because I know what I believe is that when we die, we don't stop living. Yeah. And so death always feels like this final thing that a person ceases to be, but I don't believe yeah. that. Yeah. I completely believe that Thomas is perfectly alive and very much him right now. Yeah. But then yeah. it's not something that I get to, I've never seen past this life. And so yeah. it's just, you know, one of those things where our, our faith and the practical situation just cause havoc in our own brains and hearts. So, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I mean, there's just so much sadness and feel for his wife and yeah. his other daughter. And just, you know, there's just a yeah. lot of, 
lot of feelings, but I'm really thankful that in in this case, there are words that we can take comfort from his own words, which is why yeah. we wanted to do this podcast today and and play some of those words. Yeah. Yeah, there are two sermons in particular. Now, Thomas was an Anglican, which means uh, he preached for 20 minutes. That's, uh, it's, I think that's part of the deal. I don't know if that was like if, if it's in writing or something, but it's a sh- uh, Thomas got straight to the point always. Uh, so we actually have got time in the podcast to play two of his sermons. And the two that I would, I would like uh, for our listeners to hear, first one is his last sermon. <laughs> uh, and he was, he was saying uh, goodbye, a temporary goodbye to his congregation, uh, expecting to be gone for 11 weeks on sabbatical. I, a brother since has said uh, <laughs> it was the first day of his eternal sabbatical. It was a longer sabbatical than he knew. But uh, he had, uh, he was saying goodbye, and he, there is one point that he particularly wanted to make to his congregation, the one thing he wanted them to remember uh, in his absence. And it's, an, uh, it's a beautiful thing. So we're going to play that sermon. And then, uh, then the second sermon you sent to me. How'd you find the second sermon, Aaron? Oh, I was just going through some old memory things and looking at what people were writing, and and yeah. that came up in one of them. And I listened and just thought, this is this is good. This is a healing yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. So the second message is one that Thomas preached back in 2014 on grieving with hope. Uh, and I'm sure you're going to find both of these messages helpful. So uh, stay with us. We'll be back with Thomas McKenzie on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Morning, everyone. I'm Thomas McKenzie, pastor of this here church. Good to have you all here with us today. Uh, this is the third in a uh, kind of a three-part uh, sermon I'm giving on uh, John chapter 6. So the first week, which was a couple weeks ago, I talked about how it is that the Father brings us to himself through Christ, how Christ does not let us go. Um, so I talked about that, that choosing, that, that bringing. Um, last week, I talked about how it is we remain in that, how we remain in Christ. So I talked about sacrament, the outward invisible sign of inward and spiritual grace. And specifically, I talked about the body and blood of Christ, the Holy Communion. And this week, I'm going to talk about how it is that we move towards maturity in Christ. How do, what is our part in moving forward as mature Christians? Um, so to do that, let me tell you about uh, the journey that Max is taking right now. So I'm about, here in a couple weeks, I'm going to be in Spain. And supposedly, God, God, will, God wills it or whatever. Um, whatever verbiage you're supposed to use. And... And I'm going to be walking the Camino de Santiago, which is this 500-mile pilgrimage from the French Pyrenees to the body of St. James the Great that lies in Santiago de Compostela. And I have been a little nervous about this for all kinds of reasons, but one reason is because of COVID. I'm like, what is COVID doing to España? You know, like, what is happening over there? And what's it look like on the pilgrimage trail? And so I ended up, there's a, there's a guy in our church who knows someone 
who is walking the Camino like right now, like today, even as we speak. He's over there. His name's Max. And so I followed Max on Facebook. And Max and I have been like, I've been like, hey man, how's it going? You know? Well, Max uh, a couple weeks ago had a really awful day. I want to tell you about his really awful Max's really awful day. Um, it was he had a very long walk ahead of him. Um, and it was really hot. Spain, at the, Spain a couple weeks ago was going through a massive heat wave. It was 96 degrees, which in Spain is unbelievably hot. And he was, of course, like you do, he's carrying his backpack with, you know, 20 plus pounds or whatever of all his worldly possessions. And he was walking to Pamplona, which is the, you know, running of the bulls city. So he's walking to Pamplona and he says that the last 12 miles leading up to Pamplona, there wasn't a single establishment open. There wasn't a, a bar or a restaurant, a shop. There was nothing open. And he ran out of water. And so he walked the last several miles with no water, really, really thirsty. Until he finally got to Pamplona. And in Pamplona, he, he recognized that he was really dehydrated. And so he ended up having to stay an extra day in Pamplona just to recover from that walk. And so I, I read this and I was like, wow, that's rough. You know, I got a little nervous for myself, as you can imagine. And I was thinking about Max, I'm like, man, that was really hard. And then I realized, wait a minute, Max made a really big mistake. You know, I was like, now I don't know why he made the mistake, but here's the thing. When you're walking to Pamplona, you're walking through a couple little tiny towns and you're walking through all these farms, like these farmhouses and stuff, I'm like, dude, knock on a door and ask for water, you know? Like, people live there, you know? Just, just go up and knock on the door. Now, I don't know why he didn't do that. Maybe he didn't think of it, you know? It's certainly possible. Maybe he was concerned for some reason about security or his safety or whatever. Uh, maybe he just doesn't understand that heat stroke will kill you, right? I'm not sure what it was that was going through his head. But I, if I were there and I were Max, I may well not have knocked on someone's door either. And the reason would have been only pride. That's why I wouldn't have. I have my whole life had this thing about me where I think I've got it figured out. Right? I got it. I know you don't know this, right? <laughs> That's weird. Anyway, um, I thought I hit it so well. Like I, like, I have this holy thing where I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this. I got it figured out. I can do, I can do this and everything else. So I've got this thing. And it's, you know, it's kind of bred into me by my mom and dad. And you can, we could work that on therapy or whatever. But, like, it's a thing, right? It's this pride. It's this arrogance that says, like, oh, yeah, no, I've got this together. Um, I don't need anyone's help. I don't need to ask for anything. Right? Now, now, if I was Max and I was doing that, like, um, and just imagine that for a second. Like, that could have killed him. Like, that could kill a person in Max's situation. Now, sometimes this kind of pride, this kind of arrogance is, is great, right? It prevents you from having low self-esteem, which is always a problem, right? You can kind of, like, you, makes you optimistic, makes me optimistic. I'm like, oh, yeah, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine because I'm in charge, Right? But the, the, the reverse of it is, it often doesn't work out well at all. 
because I'm not that competent at basically anything, right? And so when I reach my level of competence, then I'm like, yeah, I got this. Well, that's not going to work. And it makes me really odious to people around me. You know, who wants to be with someone who's like, oh yeah, I got this. I got this all the time. That is a terrible relationship. You don't want to do that. All right. So that is not a good thing. And it's something that like I recognize about myself. Now, maybe you recognize it a little bit about yourself, just maybe a little bit. Of course, the opposite of pride, the opposite of arrogance is humility. And humility is, I'm sure, is a wonderful thing, right? But seems to be very philosophical, okay? But what does humility feel like? Like, what is humility on the ground in real life? What is it? In, in my opinion, humility on the ground in real life is surrender. It's surrender. Like, it would have been if Max had surrendered to reality, the reality of his impending death, you know, his impending death by heat exhaustion or by heat stroke. Like, that's surrender. Surrender is humility. Because what surrender is, is saying, you know what, I don't have it together. I need something that only, that only I can get from someone else. I need something that I can't provide for myself. I need to read the directions. Right? I need to ask someone for, for water. I need to, to, to go to someone else. I need to, to go and figure out, like, who can help me with this? What can help me with this? Like, that act of surrender is what I find to be humility. Today in the gospel lesson, you have an act of surrender, an act of humility um, from one of the people in the story. So the, you, just to remind you of the story, so remember, we've been talking about Jesus has been doing all these spectacular things. He walked on water. He fed 5,000 people with a little bit of bread. He did all this stuff. And then everyone's gathered around him, and he has his disciples, all these people following him, and he has this crowd. And then he starts talking about how he is the bread that came down from heaven. And everyone's like, what? And then he says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have life in you. And everyone's like, what? That is nuts. Right? And so at the very beginning of today's passage, the people who are listening to this say, this is a difficult saying, who can abide by it? In other words, you are crazy. What do you mean we're supposed to eat you? That is disgusting and freakish. And we're going to go home now, right? Which is what you do when the leader says, eat my body. You go like, I'm out, tap out, right? Tap out. And so all these people start leaving, and not just the crowd, but it says his disciples start leaving. People who had actually followed him, who were committed to him, had, who had been like walking around with him maybe for years, who knows? They took off. And so Jesus turns to his, the 12 who are still there, and he looks at them and he says, well, what are you guys going to do? Does this scandalize you? Are you scandalized, is the Greek word, by what I've said? And St. Peter, who's just at that time just Peter, Peter says to him, well, Jesus, like, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? Where else should we go? Now, that's an act of humility, right? But it's also just an act of surrender. Peter's in the situation where he has heard it all. And he, is, he, is, he has heard it all. He grew up in the, in the church, as it were. He understands the scriptures. Like, he, he gets it. 
He's heard teachers before. He was there when John the Baptist was doing his thing. Now he's been following Jesus around and he sees that Jesus is like healing people and casting out demons and like all this kind of stuff. And Peter has come to believe that Jesus is the whole game, right? That Jesus is the, is the son of God that he knows, that he understands. And now that Jesus is saying something completely crazy, Peter's options are go somewhere else or just surrender. Just say, you know what? I don't understand what you're talking about. That sounds nuts to me. You're completely weirding me out right now, right? And I don't have any other choice. I don't have any other realistic choice. Where am I supposed to go? You have the words of eternal life. I, you, you have no idea how many times I've been in exactly that situation, haven't you? At least once in a while? Like probably more often than you would like your pastor to admit, I've been in a situation where I look at God, I look at the state of the church, I look at the state of the world, and I say, what is going on, man? Like, what is your God's, what is your problem? What is happening? Why is this going on? Why are you allowing this? I don't get it. I, I don't get it, you know? And it bothers me and it messes with my head. And the, the thing is that sometimes I say, you know what, let's just forget this whole thing, right? Obviously this religion thing isn't working out. <laughs> Right, churches are messed up all over the uh, all over the country. You know, you can read about them every day in the, on the internet. All kinds of horrible things happen. Like, what is going on? But ultimately, I always come back to this. I always come back to this statement of Peter's. Where else am I supposed to go? You have the words of eternal life. That is my witness, as well as Peter's. I don't know where else to go. It's not because I haven't looked or haven't studied or I don't understand other religions or other philosophies. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that my experience has been, I don't have anywhere else to go. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. So one of my great religious teachers um, is a woman who lived in the fourth century, um, whose name was Syncletica, Ama Syncletica. And she um, was a desert father. She lived in the desert and built a monastery for, for women. But when she was younger, um, she lived in a very wealthy family, and her father um, was a merchant, a major merchant in the Mediterranean, and apparently either built or owned a lot of ships. And so Amma Syncletica, Syncletica knew about ships. And you can imagine the fourth century on the Mediterranean is this amazing time of, of, of merchant ships, and it's got, they've got amazing sailing ships. They've got amazing um, ships with, you know, unfortunately slaves, you know, with the oars and the whole thing. Like, there's all kinds of, 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 of sea travel going on in the Mediterranean at this, at this time. And she has seen all of that and grew up on that, grew up on ships. And she has this, um, she has several spiritual sayings that have been helpful for me. One of which is this. She says this. She says, as nails are, to a ship, so is faith to eternal life. I'm sorry, so is humility to eternal life. As nails are to a ship, so is humility to eternal life. Now, I just want you to think about ships for just a second. To me, a ship is the least humble thing you can imagine, right? Because a ship 
is this beautiful thing, this, be- this beautiful vessel that says, yeah, I'm way heavier than water, but I'm going to go to the ocean now, right? I am going to go into this vast expanse of sea where I'm not going to see land. There's going to be storms. There's going to be, in the fourth century, perhaps there's going to be sea monsters. There's certainly going to be pirates, right? I don't have radar or sonar because I'm in the fourth century. Like, I'm going to go off and I'm going to do this thing and just try to stop me, you know? I just imagine the ship as this this amazing thing. And I think a ship is a good metaphor for the way we often want to live our lives, right? I want to look good and do awesome stuff, right? I want to look amazing. I want to go out there and people be like, well, look at that, go by, you know? And I want to do stuff, I'm like, get out of my way, you know? Stupid pirates, stupid sea monsters, oceans. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to make some serious money doing it. Like, that sounds great, and Syncletica is like, oh, yeah, let's use that as a metaphor for eternal life, right? Eternal life is sort of like that. Eternal life is joyful. It is glorious. The kingdom of heaven is this wonderful experience that happened that is now and, of course, in the future. But how does one come to eternal life? How does one grow in maturity in Christ? How does one become more and more the person, the ship, that God made you to be. And Amos and says, with the nails of humility. The nails of humility. Well, let's follow that metaphor for just another minute. What does that mean? Humility, just like nails, are like little tiny things that are not seen. But without it, nothing is going to move. That ship is going to sink. Humility is not a one-time event in a human being's life. Humility is not a characteristic that you always are going to exhibit. Humility is not something that you get when you just like pray that one prayer or go to take that sacrament or, you know, when you get baptized or whatever else. Humility is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of acts of surrender. It's all these little tiny acts of surrender in which you look at the world or you look at what's going on in your heart and your mind and you say, someone is going to do better at this than I am. Someone knows more than I do. I need to stop somewhere and figure this out. You know what? I don't understand what God is doing, but I'm going to go ahead and believe that God knows better than I do. Every single one of those moments... Those are the acts of humility that are like the nails that hold together everything in the Christian faith. Those little acts of humility. Now, when I was thinking, so I'm not going to see you all for like, I guess, 10 or 11 weeks or something. Right? I'm not going to see you all till Halloween. And hopefully the weather will be cooler, right? And I was thinking, what, am, what do I want you to to know, what, what, what is my last word to you before I take off? And it's this. All those moments where you look at God and don't get him, where you look at the church, the world, and are like, I don't understand this. I'm overwhelmed by this. This is freaking me out. In, in software language, that's not a bug. That's a feature. Right? That's not a bug. That's not an accident of the human life. 
that's a feature of the human life. The human life is filled with moments where you and I are not going to get it. We are not going to understand. We're going to be completely freaked out. We're going to be upset. We're going to be disturbed. We're going to read something like we did the New Testament lesson today. Anything in there bothers anyone, right? And go like, oh, I don't know about this. There's going to be moments like that. Those moments, in those moments, you and I have a choice. We have the choice of saying like, you know what? I got this. I got it figured out. You know what? It's this way, right? Or we have the choice of going and finding a farmhouse and knocking on the door and asking for some water. We have the choice of arrogance. We have the choice of humility. I implore you to choose humility, to choose surrender, to choose giving up of your belief in your own competence, your belief that you've got it all together, belief that you've got it all figured out or you understand it, right? And if, the, and if everyone else can't get on board, well, they're just fools, you know? But instead, choose humility. Choose to say, you know what? I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know why this is. And in that, Christ meets us. Like that's where God meets us, is in those times of weakness, of surrender. If you're strong, you don't need Jesus. It's in the times of weakness. So be weak, right? Acknowledge it, own it, surrender. Knock on the door. Just ask someone for some water. Amen. Greetings, podcast listener. This is Father Thomas McKenzie. You are about to hear the sermon that I gave on November 9, 2014. It comes from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I'm not going to read it to you because I quote it completely in the text of the sermon. So I uh, hope this is a blessing to you. God bless. As a pastor of a church, I um, conduct a lot of Yes, I, I conduct a lot of funerals, um, and in fact, this very week I'm going to be sitting down and um, with a couple in our church and planning one of their funerals, um, which is probably more imminent than um, we would like. Um, so funerals are not new to me, and at the same time, there are certain funerals that are particularly memorable, and I want to tell you about one of those uh, real quick. So it was over a decade ago now, 11, 12 years ago, I was... Um, asked to perform a a funeral for a young man, 19 years old, who was a refugee from Sudan. And um, he had had come here not with his family. His family, if they were still alive, were, I guess, back in Sudan. But there were many members of his um, tribe present um, in our our community that he had been resettled here uh, by the U.S. government, um, as many Sudanese were during that time period of the last couple decades. And this young man had made a had made a mistake while he was here. He had lit, quite literally brought a knife to a gunfight, um, and had engaged in an argument with two young men in a parking lot, and got shot over a parking space. Um, and so the the funeral was packed. There were several hundred um, Sudanese there. Very few native, uh, you know, U.S. folks like myself. 
Um, and it was a remarkable experience because I was the guy running the, the funeral supposedly, but they were really running the funeral. And they had, there was like, for instance, one moment where his aunt got up and said, I loved my, you know, my, my nephew, but he was a fool. And then started talking to the young people in the room and said, and if you are foolish like him, you too will end up in this box. And so you need to like, he, you know, it was just, I was like, well, that's a lot of honesty. <laughs> Usually we just say nice stuff, you know, he was kind to animals, you know, or whatever. Don't usually call the dead person a fool. Um, so, but that honesty really continued, like throughout the entire event, that honesty continued and honesty specifically continued when we got to the gravesite. And now the gravesite had even more. There were hundreds of Sudanese people and four or five people uh, who were born in the United States, me and the funeral director, and then a couple guys who worked for the graveyard. And what was supposed to happen was that I was supposed to get my little thing, and then everyone was supposed to, you know, say goodbye, and they were supposed to leave. And then they were supposed to lower, the guys who worked for the graveyard were supposed to lower the coffin into the dirt, and then cover while, you know, while no one's watching, right? Because that's the way we do, you know, we Americans, that's the way we do things. And so after I did my thing, and standing around, and no one was leaving, and I spoke to one of the elders of the tribe, and I said, could you, you know go somewhere else now because they need to put the body in the ground. He said, no, 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 we're going to put the body in the ground. And I was like, I'm going to go talk to the funeral director. So I went to talk to the funeral director and I said, they say they're going to put the body in the ground. He was like, no, they're not. We have regulate this regulation, this regulation. And I was like, we're back over to the elder. He says that you're not going to do it. He was like, well, we're going to do it. And I was like, so I went back over to the funeral director and I said, look, There's three of you, because I'm not getting involved in this at all. There's three of you and like hundreds of them. I would let them do whatever it is they're going to do, because they're very like, you know, into it. And he was like, he's like, if you'd ever tell anyone that this happened, I was like, no. Like, no, it's fine. So he did. He said to these guys, he's like, okay, we're just going to let them do whatever they're going to do. And they did. And oh my gosh. They, these people, they picked up the casket and like by hand, like guys got into the, into the grave. They lowered it down with their hands. And then they all started like wailing and crying and beating on the casket and crying out to the Lord in their own language. And there was like, there were tears and dirt, which equals mud. And there was, and it was this huge, like wailing, emotional, like outpouring. And it was like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, because this is what grief looks like, right? The way we grieve is we go like, right? We like wipe a tear, you know, and then like we go home and feel things. But like these people were just, they were feeling stuff and they were like, you know, they were chanting and they were screaming and they were beating on things. It was gorgeous, right? It was gorgeous. And it was so incredibly Christian. Like it was just the most Christian funeral I've ever been to. Because they felt the stuff, right? They engaged. Today, we have this reading from St. Paul speaking. The Holy Spirit of God is speaking through St. Paul, and he's writing to the, the Thessalonians. And it's on page 1094 in the Bible in front of you. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I want to point out that this, biblical scholars believe that this is very possibly the very first book written in the New Testament. 
Now, this is the earliest New Testament book written maybe even only 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so what you have here is you have the church just at the very beginning. Right, right at the very beginning. And even here at the very beginning, they're worried about the dead. Of course they are. Right? They're worried about the dead. And so St. Paul, speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, writes to them and says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Or you do not grieve like the world who has no hope. Now, here's what I want to say. There's two really important things I want to say today. First is this. Paul does not say, we do not want you to grieve. Period. Right? What he says is, we do not want you to grieve like the rest who have no hope. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that grief, totally cool. Right? That grief is part of humanity. We were made to grieve. In fact, we were made for all substantial emotions. The, the, the best possible response to death, the death of a dream, the death of a person, the death of a relationship, the best possible response to death is grief. That's the most Christian response. The, most, the best response to something that is sad is to be sad. The best response to something that is, it makes you angry is to be angry. The best response to something that is joyous is to be joyful. The best Christian response is to feel the feeling that is presented by the situation. That is, the, the, that is the, what is going on because we are embodied. We are human beings. Right? And so we are filled with not just our minds, our thoughts, right, which are very important, but with our feelings. Right? And as long as we are embodied, which will be always, um, as long as we are embodied, we can expect to feel. And so Paul tells us, grieve. Right? And that's what those people, those Sudanese were doing. And that is what many of you have done um, in my presence over the years. We grieve. Okay? So grief is important. Having strong emotions is Christian. Now, one of the things I have on on Wednesday nights, we've been doing this, this, this deal where I'm teaching about spiritual formation groups that we're about to launch here in the church. And one of the things I want the people in the groups to do is when they gather together in the group, they're supposed to say evening prayer together, and then they're supposed to check in with their feelings. And I tell people, what that means is you just say, hi, my name is Thomas and I'm checking in with, and I name the feeling, the emotion that I'm most present to. Right. So right now, as you sit there, you, as you sit there right now, you have an emotion, right? There is some emotion going on and probably more than one. There's some emotional response or place where you dwell. And too many of us don't know what that is, right? Too many of us have no idea what we're feeling at any particular moment. And so part of spiritual formation is I'm trying to teach people to recognize how they're feeling. Right? Because that's just Christian. That's just human. Right? And it's therefore just spiritual. And so our feelings, what I'm trying to say to you is our feelings are important. And how we, how we feel is important. And St. Paul goes on. He says, And so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. In other words, feelings are really important, but feelings don't rule. Right? Your feelings are important, but feelings aren't the Lord. So grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And then Paul begins to give us the hope that we have, especially the hope for those who have died. Now, 
I have been, I, because I've also know people who have died, I've been to many funerals. I haven't just done, you know, conducted funerals. I have been to funerals. And oftentimes there is hope, almost always in a funeral. If you've ever been to a funeral, which I assume you have, there's hope, right? And oftentimes the hope is in one of two things. Sometimes the hope is in you, right? So it's like you will remember this person and therefore they will live forever, right? Or what they have taught you will be part of you and therefore you will teach it to other people and their spirit will be with you. And so you are the hope, right? Your memory of that person. Or sometimes the hope is in that person. Oh, George lived such a godly life that we know that the Lord has accepted him, right? Or, you know, John was such a, he was always there for people, always fed people, and he was a sweetheart, and so therefore, you know, he's cool or whatever. But what Paul does in this passage, the Holy Spirit speaking through St. Paul, is he does not put our hope in us or in the departed. He puts our hope squarely where it belongs, When he says this, who have no hope, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that we Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that this world is good, that God made it, and that God intends to redeem it. And then God intends to bring us back from the elements to put us back together. And we will live here with him for all eternity. In fact, he gives us incredible image. An image that unfortunately has been corrupted um, over the past hundred years. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not perceive those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, we caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So what's this incredible image? This incredible image is that Jesus who ascended will also return. That Jesus has made us a promise. Jesus has promised that all of those things that cause us grief... All those things that that tear us down, all those things that we were worried about, all the the death of relationship, the death of self, the death of our loved ones, the death of of dreams will all be ended. All of that death will be ended. Jesus will return and he will not return secretly in a way that no one knows he's coming, that he will return in a way that everyone can see him. And this image is, there's a, there's this beautiful, there's this word and it's, I would love to get all geeky with you, but it's in the Greek language what he says. We will, caught up to, we will be caught up together with the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And that word meet is really important because it's a very specific meet. And so here's the image. The image is that the king of your town, the king of your, uh, your, your town is this walled town. Pretend like your, your town is this walled town. And your king has gone off to fight a great battle, right? He's gone off with all your sons, you know, with your husbands. And he's gone off to fight this great battle. And you do not know when he is going to return, And that's like us right here on earth. Our our king has gone off and we do not know when he is going to return. But then one day the watcher is up on the wall and he's looking out, you know, over the walls and he sees something coming and he goes, what is that? What is that? And he says, it's the king. The king is coming. And so he gets his trumpet. He goes, right. And everyone's like, what's going on? The king is coming back. And so what do the people do? They say, oh, that's cool. We'll, We'll just hang out here. 
No, they don't get, they don't say that. They say the king is coming and he's, he's, he's triumphant. He's bringing back riches. He's bringing back gifts. He's bringing back our sons and our, and our, and our fathers. And so what do they do? They run out to meet him, right? The entire village empties out. Everyone runs out. Yay. The king is coming. The king is coming. King is coming. They all meet him on the road and they're like, yay, the king is here. The king is here. And so this great procession happens. This great spontaneous parade happens where they bring the king back into the city in triumph. Everyone like yelling and screaming. Everyone's so excited. And that's the image given about the return of Jesus. That Jesus will appear and they will all go like, oh my gosh. And we'll be so excited that we'll come out of the ground. That we'll be so happy to finally see Jesus return that our bodies will come back together. That that's the power of our king. That he's so amazing that our bodies will come out of the ashes. That he's so amazing that the dead will rise. He's so amazing that we will fly. We'll be so happy to see him that we cannot wait for him to get from there to here. So we will fly to him. Be like, come, come, come. We're so happy to have you back. And then when we get there, we don't go back the other direction. Right? We get there and then we usher him here. To his village. To his town. To the place where he will live forever with us. To this resurrected, reborn earth. And that is what St. Paul calls hope. That is what St. Paul calls hope. So right now we live in a world of emotion where sometimes our emotions are strong and sometimes they are despairing and sometimes they are hard and sometimes things die and people die and we have to deal with it. And that's the Christian thing to do is to deal with it, to to live through it, to feel the pain and the suffering and the hardness of it. But there will come a day when all that emotional energy will be focused on the Lord and we will rise to meet him in the air. And we will see him again and we will embrace him. And then I just want you to imagine this too. We will embrace him. We'll bring him back. And then we'll look around and go, oh, wait a minute. We're all here. Right? Like he was the, fo- he's the focus. But it'd be like, oh, there's my dad. There's my wife. There's my child. We're all here together. Right? The focus is the Lord. The Lord is king. But the hope is we'll also be with one another. So today, feel your feelings, please. Whatever you're feeling, feel it. I don't care what it is. Whatever it is, feel it. But don't feel it without hope. Recognize that everything you're feeling, everything you're experiencing ultimately belongs to the Lord. Give it to him and long with me for his return. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for all the difficult feelings I have to feel. For all the hard things I feel, for all the anger, the sadness. Thank you, Lord God, that someday, and I hope someday soon, that all of that will be focused on your return. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would feel our feelings, that we feel our feelings as people who have hope. Hope not in ourselves or even each other, but hope in the resurrection. Hope in the return. Hope, Lord Jesus Christ, in you and your lordship. And I pray, Lord Christ, that you who would be, would be lifted up among us today would transform our vision of our feelings so that we would see ourselves as under you and waiting for you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back on the Pirate Monk podcast, and uh, we 
we don't want to do a lot of talking about that and just let Thomas's words be be for you. We don't know where you're at. You might be in a season where uh, you're dealing with these things with with other loved ones, other situations. And I uh, guess our prayer is just that Thomas gets to encourage your hearts even right now as we grieve this loss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so with that, we'll say goodbye until next week. I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. We're your friends. Your heartbroken but hopeful friends on the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs>